Third Morning Lecture Be aware of your body and phenomena loosely and with observation. The first step in Dhamma practice is mindfulness. Being aware of your body and mind with ease, not controlling and not suppressing. When the mind slips away, observe that it has done so. When the mind overfocuses, just observe that it does so. Overfocusing on something means we are overfocusing and overconcentrating, samadhi, to suppress or hold the mind still so that the mind will be temporarily good and calm because we crave a tranquil mind. Then we are misled into thinking that the distracted mind is not good and we don't want it to arise and crave for its non-existence. We then suppress the mind to be still and at the base and this can cause suffering to arise. However good and calm the mind may be, it is still unstable, bound to change, impermanent, and beyond our control. It is too shallow a purpose to practice Dhamma just to achieve this. We practice Dhamma to see the truth of things, that all phenomena are impermanent, suffering, and no self. Happiness is impermanent. Suffering is impermanent, and progress in our practice is also impermanent. In short, all the five aggregates are impermanent, always fluctuating, unable to persist, and beyond our control. We will learn this eventually from our practice of mindfulness and wisdom. For as long as we do not really see the three marks of existence— of the five aggregates, we will still cling to the aggregates and be misled that they belong to us, that they are ours. Then we want to make ourselves happy. Our happiness originates from or relies on holding on to acquiring material things, such as a house, a car, money in the bank, children, grandchildren, a tree, a dog, or a cat. These material objects are what we crave and rely on for our happiness. We also rely on desirable sounds, sweet words, and beautiful songs. To sum up, we rely on desirable material forms, sounds, smells, tastes, body sensations to make us happy. Sometimes we see someone having an expensive meal and we crave that too. Then we see some pictures they have taken and show to the world on Facebook. This affects our ego. The idea represents ourself and we want to let the world know that we are here. Sometimes we crave a specific smell. It must be this particular smell, our perfume, our smell. In other words, the smell is my smell. Sometimes we crave a particular feeling on the body, the softness of a fabric, a particular shirt, bed, or linen, or a big house. We rely on these things and cling to them, because we think that they are us, we even try to control our thoughts to make them conform to what we think is good and wholesome. Why? Because we believe these external objects make us happy. We believe these external and internal objects are somehow here forever and we try to do everything we can to acquire them for the sake of our happiness. This is craving, tanaha. And as long as we are under the control of tra craving, we have lost our freedom. Craving drives us to act. The cycle of suffering is moving. Why do we crave? Because our mind does not know and understand the truth and the principle of cause and effect. Ignorance, not knowing the truth, is throughout our mind. 
so our mind keeps fabricating things, fabricating cravings, and thus causes us to act. We cling on these things, materials, family, house, money, sounds, smells, tastes, body sensations, thoughts, and feelings. All objects are bound to decay, to disintegrate, and fall apart. When we become attached to happiness, we will inevitably be disappointed and suffer. You buy a house and find the roof is leaking, and there is suffering. When you have money, you're happy, and when you lose the money, you're unhappy. You have children and want them to be good, but they have minds of their own. The same with your spouse. Who or what really belongs to us? Even happiness or pleasure from our own body and mind, even that, even ourself, our five aggregates, decays and one day eventually will die. There is no such thing as anything lasting forever. Some cravings might be about making a living in this world. There is a difference between acting out of defilement and acting out of the intention to make our life in this world, which may be necessary. As long as we still have duties, still have to live with our family, and have to make a living, then we still have to act and fulfill our responsibilities with mindfulness and wisdom. Observe the mind, whether it is driven by a wholesome mind or by defilement, while you perform your worldly duties. In this way, we can practice Dhamma in our daily life. Doing business, studying, being a mom or a dad or a grandparent are all possible. Just constantly observe the mind. When a grandchild runs to us and we feel he is so adorable and see that the mind likes this and observe that liking arises while we are hugging him or her as usual, the key is to observe the mind. We are always too absorbed in such mental phenomena. We rely on someone too much and our happiness is too dependent on him or her. Know this while still performing your required duties. The mind will somehow learn to become detached and we will know how to act more appropriately, not out of defilement such as anger, but with wisdom. If we can separate the body from the mind, we will know instantly when something happens and irritates the mind. When an irritation arises, objectively observe it and see that it arises, exists, and disappears. If we cultivate wisdom, we can handle the situation, deal with people, watch the mind, and not vent our emotions, but choose good words. Defilement will no longer be the boss. Practicing Vipassana will change our life for the better, step by step, action by action. Bad habits will become just another object to be observed. We will become familiar with our dark side, and gradually it will weaken. The shame and fear arising from the performance of bad deeds will increase, and with observation, the delusion of self will be weakened. Each time such detachment happens, the mind will become content. I will notice that I am not angry, although I should be, and my reaction will be based on wisdom instead of on defilement or ignorance. We will no longer get burned by the fire of defilement and no longer be the servant of this tyrant. With such content calmness, our mind will become kinder to our own self and to others. Our loving kindness will grow, and we may wish that others can experience this too. The Buddha is the greatest of all, the omniscient one. He performed all the actions and fulfilled all the perfections necessary to become the Buddha. 
The time to do this is beyond measurement. The journey began with his determination to become a Buddha, and through many lives he met with 135,000 Buddhas. This was followed by a period of verbal determination, stating his goal out loud, in front of more than 387,000 Buddhas. This took an immeasurable amount of time beyond counting. Our present-day Buddha was born as a hermit named Sumedha and went to pay his respects to Deepankara Buddha. Deepankara Buddha prophesied that this hermit would become a Buddha in the next four eons, plus a hundred thousand times the world arising and disappearing, and that he would be born a prince in the prosperous and beautiful land of Kapilavastu, would leave his marvelous palace to seek Dhamma, and would attain enlightenment under the Bodhi tree. When this prophecy was made, the mind of our present-day Buddha was ready, firmly destined to become a Buddha. Now he had two options. First, should he desire to become liberated, an arahant, he would achieve this goal at that very moment by his own choice, without concern for others. Second, he could become a Buddha, and for this he would have to make many more efforts and fulfill all thirty perfections, through countless lives, rebirth and death, in samsara, in hell, in the hungry and hungry ghosts and human realms, and in heaven. He chose the second option. His will was to liberate all sentient beings from suffering, no matter how hard the path would be. His wish was finally fulfilled in the final night under the Bodhi tree. Prince Siddhartha had had everything he would ever need or want, but he was not satisfied. Upon seeing old, sick, and dead people, the Bodhisattva prince decided to seek the path to end all suffering and renounce the world. First he went to study with two hermit teachers, Alara Kalama and Udaka Ramaputta, and attained the seventh and eighth levels of deep absorption concentration in only two weeks. But that was not the path he wanted to take, because jhana does not last— and once a person comes out of meditation, defilements come back. The Bodhisattva knew this was not the way to be free from suffering, so he left the hermit teachers, though they asked him to stay and help him teach. Later he found the group of his first five disciples and started practicing ascetic methods. He tortured his body and it became a mass of suffering. Although he was hungry, he didn't eat, and although he was hot or cold, he endured it. Clenching his teeth, pressing his tongue against his palate, he tortured his body to the extreme. Then he was reminded of an incident when he was young, and he meditated in a way that the mind became calm and impartial, relaxed and able to objectively observe, to see each and all phenomena clearly. Then happiness arose, and he realized that happiness and unhappiness arise in the mind and not in the body. And he called this the middle path, not to get lost in sensual pleasures and not to suppress or torture the body and mind. Contentment and discontent are actually a matter of the mind, not the body. And so he stopped the wrong practices that were torturing his body. A lady named Sujata offered him food and a man offered grass to make a comfortable seat. The Bodhisattva made his throne under the Bodhi tree and became determined that in this sitting, if he did not attain enlightenment, he would never get up, though all the blood in his body would dry up. That night he became the Buddha. 
In the first phase, 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. of the night, he attained the knowledge of all his past lives and those of all beings with no limit. In the second phase of the night, 10 p.m. to 2 a.m., he attained the knowledge of the cause of death and rebirth of all beings resulting from karma or action, cause and effect. Finally, in the last phase of the night, 2 a.m. to 6 a.m., he attained the ultimate wisdom that clears all defilements and impurities from mind, enlightenment, and he discovered the four noble truths, the cause and effect of suffering and the cessation of suffering. The Buddha's goal is to liberate all beings from suffering. For this, he has the tool of Dhamma. Pure Dhamma is Abhidhamma, the truth about mind, mental factors, matter, and cessation of suffering. The Buddha taught Dhamma to the people, and his discourses constitute the various suttas. As more people came together, there was a need for regulations, and thus came about the disciplines. Abhidhamma, the highest teaching, is the first thing that appeared in the Buddha's teaching and will be the first thing to disappear too. Anyone who is able to understand and learn Abhidhamma is very fortunate because they have this opportunity due to their actions in the past. It is the consequence of their wholesomeness from the past that causes them to be here in their present life to encounter the best chance to meet with this teaching, cultivate faith in it, and practice to cultivate the path. Our present-time Buddha only lived on this earth as the Buddha for 45 years, such a small fraction of time compared to time in other realms, but his Dhamma has lasted for more than 2,500 years and counting. His Dhamma is well-versed and beautiful in the beginning, in between, and all through to the end. The greatest teacher of all heavenly beings— Dhamma can transform an ordinary worldly person into a person beyond this world or a noble one, an Arya. The main teaching of Dhamma is the Four Noble Truths. The first truth is suffering. What is suffering? The five aggregates of self. The second truth is the cause of suffering, craving, or tanaha. Only the wisdom of the Buddha can teach us to reach the cessation of suffering, which is Niroda or Nirvana, and the path which leads to such, such cessation or the Eightfold Noble Path. The Eightfold Noble Path is the cause, and Nibbana is the consequence. Today we are here to practice to develop the cause of the cessation of suffering, which is the precepts or morality. Concentration and Wisdom The result will come eventually when the cause is cultivated. When all the spiritual faculties have been accumulated, all ten paramis will arise simultaneously. We need not be curious about when we can reap the fruit or nibbana. Just practice being in the present and cultivate the right cause. How are our precepts? How is our samadhi, our concentration? Is it stable and objectively observing at the base? We, do we see that each phenomenon arises, exists, and disappears? See this with right effort, and liberation is within reach. The principle of Dhamma practice is right mindfulness and right concentration. Be aware of the body and mind of any physical and mental phenomena. At that one moment of being fully aware, the path is being walked, suffering is being known, cause is being eradicate, eradicated, and neuroda 
cessation is being realized all in just one moment. One moment of precepts, concentration, and wisdom. This is the crown of his teaching. The Buddha discovered this and taught us ordinary people whose minds are full of impurities. Beginning with the precepts, just by maintaining the precepts, life can change a lot for the better. And then mindfulness and concentration will arise. When concentration and mindfulness are developed, samadhi is developed too. The mind can see phenomena without sinking into it and be detached from it, and our faith will develop on its own. Having mindfulness and right concentration in one mind is called a knower mind, which then can lead the mind to see the truth of the body and mind. Next, we move on to the stage of wisdom, which is to see the truth of physical and mental phenomena arising, existing, and disappearing. The mind often sees the truth of the body and phenomena until it finally learns to clearly understand and accept that everything is just arising, existing, and then falling apart. Happiness comes and goes. Suffering comes and goes. Each defilement comes and goes. See the coming and going of phenomena constantly, and wisdom will be cultivated. Eventually the mind can see the world as temporary and impermanent. Our child comes and goes. A a dog or cat comes and goes. Our house, our shop, our parents, our loved ones, we too have come and one day will go. And we may wonder whether our life is just this, born to one day die, born to just eat, sleep, mate, reproduce, and die. Is this what our life is just about? At this point, we may seek Dhamma with our heart. The Dhamma of the Buddha is the greatest. We may learn about the world have a doctor's degree, and be great at many things. But the knowing of this knowledge is all about external things, not about our own mind and our own impurities. Although we may do so well in the world, we still suffer. The Lord of Death, Yama, never cares about our academic degree or worldly achievements. He looks for the state of our virtue, mindfulness, concentration, wisdom, and our good deeds for Dhamma. We never realize that this life is not the only one. We have been born so many times already and will continue to be reborn and die so many countless times more. In our next life, we may be some lower being in one of the lower worlds or an angel in heaven. There is no certainty. Being an angel is like taking a vacation, using up our merits or wholesomeness, which we have been saving from a previous life. When our merits are all used up, it may be time to pay for our bad deeds or unwholesomeness, and we may may go straight down to the lower worlds and become a hungry or thirsty ghost, a demon, an animal, or a being in hell. Once we go down to one of the lower worlds, it is not easy to come back up. The bad deeds we have been collecting are all waiting in line for us to pay them back. When it is time to finally come back to being a human being again, Bad habits of the lower worlds will still be innate in our subconscious, pushing us to be born into a bad family with no chance to hear or be interested in Dhamma's teaching, and then it would be easy to return to the lower realms again. The cycle is moving. We're in a bad place and accumulate bad habits. Then we're reborn as human, but we're a bad human and go again to a bad destination. On and on and on. The cycle of rebirth and death, samsara, is extremely dangerous. 
It is not easy at all to be a human, and the coming of each Buddha is very, very rare. Sometimes it takes hundreds of thousands of rounds of universe cycles, many eons, before a Buddha will come. To see a Buddha or to hear his teachings is so rare. It is such a pity if we have the chance to hear Dhamma but are not interested. We don't realize this is supreme good luck. Good angels in heaven who practice Dhamma, when they are about to die, wish to be reborn as a human where Buddhism is practiced so that they can also practice to realize liberation. Because being an angel is so enjoyable, they are unable to cultivate wisdom or see suffering, and the mind which wishes to renounce sensual pleasures is not easy to attain. On the other side, being an animal in the lower worlds is very painful. Sufferings are great, and a good state of mind and wholesome mind cannot arise in such a being, unlike us humans. Our mind swings up and down. See the mind that swings. This swinging mind can teach us the three marks of existence. It is impermanent and constantly changing. Seeing the truth and thus able to let the five aggregates go, the reason that Buddha picked the human realm to spread his teachings is that in the human realm, beings experience both happiness and unhappiness. It's easy to gain wisdom, and human beings are brave enough to renounce sensual pleasure and worldly pursuits. Wisdom will lead us out of suffering. The Dhamma of the Buddha really transforms a worldly human into a supramundane being. But the result depends on the cause. Some of us know how to practice, but keep thinking about when to become an Arya. How about our present life? How about our precepts, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom? Create the right cause, and then you will get the right outcome. If we say we are practicing, but we only intently focus on an object, like the legs, stomach, or the breath, then it's not the right path, because we are avoiding the perception of sensations and cannot cultivate the knower mind. This is not the right path and will not lead to nibbana. We need to cultivate the mind that is capable of knowing, to objectively observe at the base and be able to see the truth. If the mind concentrates and sinks into one object continuously, who then will bring us out of suffering? This is not seeing the truth of physical and mental phenomena, but rather suppressing them. Somebody may think they are practicing Dhamma, but the mind is wandering off. The body sits still, but the mind wanders off. That is also not the way to establish the knower mind, which observes objectively. If someone is sitting still and the mind stops functioning with no activity of the mind whatsoever, that may lead to be a kind of Brahma, higher being, which has no mind at all. If someone sits still and the body just disappears and the mind continues to function, this is the way to become another kind of Brahma, which has no material form. We are all creating a state of being something all the time in our mind. So continuity in practice is extremely important. Every time you come to a course or retreat like this, you understand which is the right or wrong path and you are instructed how to practice. Later on, you go back to practice on your own and then you again come to a course to continue your practice. This will strengthen your Dhamma practice because you have clear understanding of the right path. If you feel this, this course offers you the right understanding, the right path to wisdom, and the right food for your mind, you are welcome to come more often. 
Each time you come to a course like this, it can shorten your practice time by years. You may practice on your own and feel like you are having doubts or just getting lazy. Then when you come to the course, listen to the lectures or principles, and feel your understanding growing deeper, practice gets easier, maintaining the precepts becomes easier, and letting go of emotions is easier. You may also find that you have more loving-kindness, may feel anger arising, but the mind doesn't attach to the anger, but sees it, and metta, loving-kindness, grows instead. Because you see your own dark side, your own fire, and feel sorry for the person and yourself instead of getting burnt by this fire of anger. We learn from our mistakes and we will know what is the right and wrong path. Do not worry about the outcome of your practice. Do not think that you must always do it right because when it is wrong and you know it's wrong, at that moment it is right instantly. One who practices Dhamma always knows his own mind and objectively observes the mind swinging up and down, which causes him to become aware of the shame and fear of doing bad deeds. Then mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom will grow, and bad habits will weaken. So we are here practicing, but for what? To see the truth. Some of us might now be experiencing back or neck pain, and this is like when a crisis in our life arises, or one of the aggregates, sleepiness or boredom arises. This is the golden moment in samsara, which is the best time to cultivate wisdom and, and mindfulness. This is when we can detach from sleepiness, from the grasp of sleepiness that holds and tortures us, and from the feeling and sensation that squeezes us. We all have to experience sensations. It is one of the aggregates and can't be escaped. How can we live with it without sinking into it and not becoming attached to it? How? By practicing mindfulness. Practice until your mindfulness is cultivated and arises spontaneously while objectively observing at the base. If we know how to meditate, the five aggregates will still function normally. Sensations, thoughts, etc. will still arise, but we will not become attached to this phenomena and take it as being personal. Some of us say, I am being mindful, but we're sitting with our neck and back bent down, leaning against the backrest and falling asleep. The mind is not objectively observing at the base and has already been overcome by sleepiness, so we have to be willing to practice, to build up our power mate. We are not here to sleep while sitting. We are here to practice. When we are sleepy, that moment is the golden moment in samsara for us practitioners to practice detaching from the suffering, sleepiness, and difficulty meditating that arises. So whenever you feel sleepy and your neck and back start bending, observe it and see how your mind reacts, then adjust your posture. Some of you say, I am in jhana, but with a bent neck or back, that is just impossible. For those who can't attain jhana, the body must be stiffly straight up, like a wooden log. From the first jhana to the eighth, the body will be stiff. Matter and mind are the cause and effect of each other. If we practice vipassana, we know the body that is moving, starting to lean toward the backrest and the neck starting to bend down. Just observe that it does. The mind wanders off. Just know this. What we have to develop are mindfulness and right concentration. And finally, these will lead to wisdom to see the truth. Continue observing as often as you can, not too strenuous, but also not too loose. 
This samsara is dangerous and really frightening. If we are born as an animal, we will kill and eat others. If we are born into a bad family that hurts or kills others, we will tend to do that too. The reasons of this world do not resonate with the laws of Dhamma. We are here with the best opportunity in samsara, which is the opportunity to practice the Dhamma. Whenever a crisis arises, be it sleepiness or pain, just know it. Observe whether we know it fast enough and whether mind and body are separated. Can we see that everything is beyond our control, constantly changing? Do we feel equanimous? Keep practicing. Under the control of craving, Tanaha, we do not have real freedom. If we do not see the three marks of existence, we will hold on to the five aggregates, body and mind, as our own self. Everything is under the laws of the three marks of existence. An ordinary person can become enlightened by following the middle path. The cause of suffering is craving, tanaha. Practice mindfulness, develop stable concentration, and don't become attached to phenomena. Things arise, exist, and fall away. See this world as temporary. Wisdom will set us free from suffering. The Buddha's Dhamma transforms an ordinary person into an enlightened being. We reap what we sow. Real Dhamma and how to practice is hard to find. Each time you come to a course like this, it can shorten your practice time by years. Be strong in building up your own parami.